Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody is your much needed wake up call in a weary world. Let Danielle's fiery passion for creating a better world kickstart your day and get woke with her bevy of special guests from the world of news and politics, art, entertainment, and spirituality. Where else can you start the conversation on the latest headlines and in on the importance of rest and mindfulness? Where else can you hear a sitting member of Congress one day and a practicing yogi the next? Where else can you take in the world filtered through the powerful voice of a Black queer woman? Where else but Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody. Welcome back, Brown Girls. I'm Ashanti, the host of the Brown Girls Guide to Politics. Today, we're talking about a very serious issue, gun violence. Gun violence continues to be on the rise in our country. Just this year alone, we experienced awful tragedies in Buffalo and Uvalde, happening only 10 days apart from one another. These shootings shocked our nation and left us hurt, heartbroken, and angry. They are happening so often that sometimes it feels like the government is not doing anything to make real change. For today's episode, we wanted to ask, how can we reduce gun violence in our country? What more can our elected leaders do? And how can we be the change makers in our communities? My guest today can give us an insight into these questions. Today, I'm speaking with Monisha Henley, the Managing Director of State Affairs at Everytown for Gun Safety, a nonprofit organization that advocates for gun control. Monisha has experienced gun violence in her own life, which has led her to join the fight for gun violence prevention. Before we speak to Monisha, I want to chat about the recent gun bill that became law this past summer. Here to join me today is BGG producer Chelsea Daniel. Hey, Chelsea. Hi, Ashanti. On June 25th of this year, President Biden signed a gun safety bill. This is the first major gun safety legislation to be passed by Congress in nearly 30 years. And it was a response to the two mass shootings that happened only a month prior in Buffalo and Uvalde. The law gives states funding for intervention programs like mental health in hopes to prevent guns from getting in the hands of those who are a threat to themselves or others. This bill is a small step, but even President Biden admits that it could do more. I am happy that any change is being made at all. However, I think there needs to be more change set forth in policymaking. I grew up in a city where I heard gunshots at night pretty often, and I have cousins who lived around the corner from a shooting where a young boy was killed. My cousins were too scared to go to the bodega to get food or go to the grocery store alone. This should not be the norm, and big change really needs to happen. What was your reaction to hearing about this law? I was actually excited about the law because it is a long time coming. Like, like you, I grew up in a neighborhood where gun violence was definitely something that you dealt with on a daily basis. And when I think about mass shootings, 
The first mass shooting for me was Columbine. I was in high school during that time, and I remember coming home, turning on the news, and you're seeing kids your age that look just like you climbing out of windows, carrying friends who had been shot. And to think now it's taken this long for us to just actually get some type of action in Congress. And we know that there's been tons of mass shootings since then. So I'm really glad that the bill got passed, but there is way more that we can do. And what we have to think about is what is really stopping us as a country, what is stopping us as elected officials to take a much larger step. And I think we have to acknowledge the fact that the gun industry still has a huge hold on elected officials and politicians and just overall money in this country. I do think the mental health piece is a huge step in this bill, especially for communities of color investing in mental health. We know that so many people who have been shot, unfortunately, has been at the hands of someone who is suffering mental illness. And we also know from communities that have already implemented these intervention programs when they're sending mental health aids instead of the police, it leads to a much better situation. So I really definitely want to see more, but we also know in order to get more, that means that we need better elected officials in the policymaking realm who are going to continue to fight for us to have better laws. Exactly. And I think that you mentioned a really good point of how gun violence also disproportionately affects communities of color, women, and other marginalized groups more than any other communities. When I heard about the Buffalo shooting, I feared for, you know, the safety of my family and myself as a Black person. I feel like I hear about these events so often that target our communities. Do you think that this law addresses this statistic? And what do you think could be done to address this issue? This is a really deep question, because when we think about Buffalo, you just had Black people going about their normal business in a grocery store. And it also makes me think about South Carolina, where you had Black people who were worshiping and then had someone come in and then just shoot them while they were practicing their faith. It is extremely hard being a Black person in this country because where are you safe? If you're not safe at your church, if you're not safe in the grocery store, if you're not safe at school, it just continues to be an example of the levels of anti-Blackness that exists in this country, especially at the hands of white supremacy. So when I really think about this question and the mass shootings that are happening in regards to Black people, it's really been at the hands of white supremacy. So what are we doing as a country to address that? So we need to be continuing to have the conversations in this country about the pain and the trauma that Black people have experienced since we are brought over here and how none of that has been addressed and how we see it play out in gun violence. And I'm glad that with this shooting, we even had President Biden admit that it was a racialized offense and that we can have more open conversations in our country about the truth behind these shootings and behind the violence that occurs in our communities. Yeah. And what President Biden said is is very important. You have to call it out because if you don't call it out, 
then it just seems like another random act of violence. And we know what happened in South Carolina, what happened in Buffalo. Those were not random acts of violence. Those were targeting Black people. And I just, I really want to see more of this from President Biden as a white man who has lived through so much. When he says it, it is important and people do listen. Exactly. I appreciate you coming on the show, Chelsea. Thank you so much, Ashanti. We'll dive into more with our guest, Monisha Henley. I hope you find hope in this conversation. Monisha, thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome to the Brown Girls Guide to Politics. How are you? I'm doing well. How about yourself? Doing good, doing good. You know, these midterm elections are right around the corner, so lots going on. There sure is. 27 days, I think, is the count. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) My stress level just went up. Sorry. No. (laughs) We're in that final sprint. We are. We are. And like whenever I hear like the actual days, it just becomes more and more real. But we're definitely going to talk a little bit about the midterms today. But first, please tell the BGG listeners a little bit about yourself and Everytown and what Everytown does. I'm a huge fan of the work, so I'm excited to introduce the organization to new people. Thank you so much. Um, I'm Monisha Henley. I am the Managing Director of State Government Affairs here at Everytown. Um, This work is so personal to me. I am originally from Wilmington, Delaware, and Unfortunately, Wilmington is a small city with a large gun violence problem, and it was not unfamiliar to me to be told by my father that I couldn't go to the corner store because there was activity happening. One of my cousins was shot and luckily survived when she was just picking up some Jamaican food. Mm. And then unfortunately, my sophomore year in college, I was at a small school in North Carolina. I was on my way to a party. And I heard screams and I heard pops and I didn't know what was happening. And it turned out that there had been an argument between two football players, one from a rival school, one from my school who got into a dispute about a football game. And as a result, somebody pulled out a gun and I lost a friend that day. And my story is not unique. Unfortunately, way too many of us are touched by gun violence in America, and I'm lucky to work for an organization like Everytown, which is the largest gun violence prevention organization in the nation. We have nearly 10 million supporters, which include parents and students and survivors and educators, and just, you know, Americans fighting every day for common sense gun safety. And it's a privilege to get to do this fight every day on the ground with our volunteers and with legislators and our champions. Yes. And I want to dive a little bit more into your story. You gave us a little snippet of why this work is so personal to you. And when was the moment when you said, I actually have to dedicate part of my career to doing this work and I have to go to every town to let people know how real the gun violence epidemic is? Sure. Um, So... There was two moments. One was like my kind of like mini aha. And the next one was my, no, now is the time. Mm -hmm. So the first one was I had the opportunity to live abroad. And that is when the Virginia Tech shooting happened. 
And I was living in the United Kingdom and West Bromwich in England. And everybody around me was like, ah, oh, this is such an American issue. Like, where do you keep your gun? Mm. And I was so appalled that this moment when college students were losing their friends and having gone through my own experience in college was like, this is the response. This is how we're seen is like, you know, the wild, wild west and every American yeah. is carrying their gun. And like, there was no sympathy and no empathy. And I was like, we can't be this. Like, this is not who I want to be in the world. This is not what I want to represent. And I want to work on this issue and address this issue. And I went back to the States and went to go work for the U.S. Senate, where this was not a part of my portfolio. But when I left the Senate, I found a job with American Nurses Association as one of their federal lobbyists. And during my time with ANA, the Pulse nightclub shooting happened. Mm. And the members of ANA decided to get together and declare gun violence a public health epidemic. Mm -hmm. And that this would be something that the nurses in America would advocate for, would lobby against and say, enough is enough. That is when I had the opportunity to be a part of then President Obama's Gun Violence Roundtable, which was a working group with lots of organizations across the board, really trying to find solutions to gun violence, met the people at every town. And I was like, that's what I want to do. And more mm -hmm. importantly, that was the moment when I said, like, we've been able to make some great strides at the federal level, but I really want to work in the states where you can have immediate and effective impact right away on the communities most impacted. Yes. And I want to talk to you a little bit about that. And thank you for sharing that with us, because I know that it's very personal. But one of the things that we know when it comes to women of color, it really is a personal issue that drives us to get so involved. And you wanted to make a difference. You just talked about the federal level and the local level. And how did we kind of even get here and what kinds of legislation are you hoping to see pass? Because we'll talk a little bit more about the work that Congress and sure. Biden-Harris were able to do because I'm really excited about it. But why? Just why, when we even started to see this, were we not able to get it under control? And I remember reading a story about airport security mm -hmm. and how airport security evolved and um, mm -hmm. you know, decades ago, literally people hijacking planes like became a thing mm -hmm. until people were like, wait, this could get serious and deadly. So that's when we started to have airport security. So mm -hmm. we saw, especially after gun laws got loosened under certain presidential administrations, mm -hmm. they got bad, but we still didn't do anything. We didn't do like we did with airport security where we're People are still taking off their shoes unless you got pre-check and clear and all of these things. But I think it's like, why? Why, why? is this? Why? Yep. <laughs> yep. Yeah. And something that I think we can acknowledge is that gun violence has gotten worse year after year. As you've already said, this is a uniquely American problem. And it really comes down to something really simple that the gun lobby and its friends, some of them lawmakers, some of them constituents, were committed to saying that this is who we want to be. And we saw year after year, especially at state houses across America, this guns everywhere agenda where bad policies were put in place to make it easier to not only obtain a gun, but for it to end up in a violent outcome. 
And I think the thing that we are seeing is that there has actually been real momentum in the last five years where instead of treating gun violence as this third rail issue of something we just don't talk about, we just don't say that here, that we're saying, no, we're going to talk about this. We're going to bring this up at our Thanksgiving dinner table. We're going to bring this up in our conversations at schools and in school board meetings. We're going to bring this to the legislature and say, enough is enough. We're done with these bad policies and we're going to do something about it. And I think that is why you have started to see a real shift. And I honestly have to give a huge credit to the students in Parkland who were using their voice and raising their voices and demanding attention and say, now is time. Mm -hmm. Now is the time. And as a result, we've seen just incredible momentum in the last five years. Yes, we have seen that momentum. And then in June of this year, the gun violence prevention community had a huge celebration when President Biden signed into law the first major gun safety legislation that Congress has passed in nearly 30 years. I was also really excited about this because Congresswoman Lucy McBath helped lead the charge and I run Emerge and she's one of our Emerge alums. And I had talked to her about running for office. So it was just so great to see again, another woman of color who took her pain and turned it into action. And it was like so great to have that. So let's just talk a little bit more in like, what ways was this a success? But we know it's not enough. And what are some of the further steps that can be taken, in your opinion, by the Biden-Harris administration and by Congress for us to keep it going so we're not waiting another 30 years for us to see real solutions? So um, something that I think is just incredible is the BISCA, the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act, put out a lot of opportunities. And one of the things they did was release funding specifically around implementation for the states to be able to apply for and make it as simple as possible for the states to access that fund. So one of the pieces that Congresswoman McBath has been a huge champion on, something that we've seen in even a place like Florida, is extreme risk laws being put into effect. And a huge part of the federal legislation, now law, was having funds for more ERPO implementation. So something that we're encouraging states to do is apply for those funds, utilize those funds. I always say the law is only as good as it's being practiced. So making sure people know that the law exists, knowing how to utilize the law, making sure that the courts are aware, that law enforcement's aware, that all the partners that we need to make these things go from something on a piece of paper to real Mm -hmm. are part of those conversations. And there has been great engagement with that. Biden-Harris um, administration has already led a couple of roundtables where they've brought together state lawmakers to talk about how they can be supportive of implementing those types of policies that came out of the federal law. Mm-hmm. The other big piece, which is also related to funding, is CVI funding, is making sure that violence intervention programs are getting the funding that they need because they are addressing the community most disproportionately impacted by gun violence and making sure that those folks who are running and leading those programs are not constantly thinking about how do we get the dollar and cents to keep going, but that they're able to have their local partners, their state partners, their federal partners providing that funding streams to them so they can keep doing the incredible work that they're doing in those communities. And that has been a huge shift in the work that we've seen, not only from what happened with the federal legislation, but also with the states. 
Our number right now is that we've secured $860 million in funding this year. I'm sorry, so you got to repeat that again. Yes. That's amazing. $868 million in funding. Yes. Amazing. So we're close to a billion dollars in funding for these community events intervention programs. And like, that's exactly what we need to see keep going. There's also a lot of opportunity to think about holding the gun industry accountable. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times we think about the gun owners and what is happening in that violent moment, but we're not often thinking about what is the role that the industry plays in this? Mm -hmm. You were talking about the story of how we ended up getting airport security. Something I talk about a lot is when car accidents was the leading cause of death for children and teens, we saw something happen. We yeah. saw seatbelts seat put in place. Mm -hmm. We saw like new regulations on how you put a child carrier in a car. Mm -hmm. You can tell I'm not a parent. <laughs> um, <laughs> you, you, you saw that there was actual things happening to make mm -hmm. sure that industry was being regulated. So why are we giving an exception to the gun industry? And something that we know from the shootings we saw this summer is there was a trend. Mm -hmm. The shooters were using certain firearms because they saw advertisements for it on Facebook and in other places that was kind of giving them this idea of this ideal lifestyle. And we know for a fact the reason that the shooter in Buffalo chose the gun that he chose was because of that, because he wrote it in his manifesto. So mm -hmm. why shouldn't we say something to that industry and hold them accountable? We've already started to see progress on that in places like New York and California. I know that the president has been very committed to being able to put a ding in the placa shield and help lift it. Mm -hmm. And we're looking forward to doing more of that in the states. And we know if we want to get this done, we need great elected officials. Absolutely. So midterms around the corner, as we talked about. And Every town, through your platforms, you encourage folks to make sure that they vote for gun sense candidates like Congresswoman Lucy McBath. There are so many of our eMERGE candidates on the ballot who have the support of every town. I even love seeing them when they come to our program and they're like, I learned of eMERGE through every town and I want to help make a difference on gun violence prevention. So we know that it starts with having those great candidates. So tell the listeners a little bit more about what being a gun sense candidate entails and why this election is so critical to gun reform. Sure. So what it means to be a gun sense candidate is that you are a champion, that you believe in some of our core issues, things like background checks, things like standing up for ERPO, which I mentioned previously, standing against policies that we know are not only dangerous, but are racially motivated, like stand your ground, like standing firmly against that, um, that it's very simple. I feel like everybody should be a gun sense champion because I think we all agree that we don't want to see violent outcomes continue to happen with guns. Mm -hmm. And so the way that the process works is there is a questionnaire. You fill it out if you're running for local to federal office. And then if you've done the process accordingly, you're receiving the distinction. And it's just something we are so proud of because our goal was not for this to be just an endorsement, but it was really to just show how many people are with us mm -hmm. and how many people are putting that check mark next to their name saying, yes, I stand on this issue. Mm -hmm. For far too long, we saw that 
NRA elected officials would wear their A rating from the NRA proudly. And we've now seen the balance of that of people wearing their F rating proudly and getting that distinction. I know that you were talking a little bit about the where. Mm -hmm. So happy to talk about why these races are so important, especially the governors. We have 36 governors on the ballot. And I think oftentimes when we're thinking about elections, we're thinking about the president, the White Mm -hmm. House, the House and the Senate. But we also need to not take for granted who is running your state. Right. Ah. So (laughs) let's dive into that a little bit, because most people won't really think about the fact that the governor may have a role to play. A mayor may have a role to play. State legislators may have a role to play. So give us a little civics education on just a few of the different elected offices that play a role in gun violence prevention. Sure. I will say every role plays a role in Mm -hmm. gun violence prevention. If you are an elected official, you have power to do something on this issue. Mm. From your school board to your city council to, as you mentioned, state legislators to the governor. They all have different powers. They have all have different authorities, but they all have an opportunity to really make an impact. Just recently, Honolulu City Council and the mayor put out an ordinance around sensitive places and where guns could be carried in Honolulu. And this is such an incredible use of their power as a city, as a county, to say, like, we're not going to let you do that here. And by putting in those types of ordinances and those regulations, it makes it easier for the state to say, oh, well, one of our largest counties, one of our most populous areas did that. Why aren't we doing that at the state level? thinking about how your legislators can be advocates and champions, and most importantly, they work for us. We Mm -hmm. are the constituents. Mm -hmm. We are the voters. And reminding them, like, whoa, 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 I didn't sign up for you to do that. This is what I want you to do. And making sure that they're hearing from us on a regular basis on how we expect them to use their vote, use their power, and use their authority. And our local legislators, our state legislators, they're in our neighborhoods. Like, they are not traveling necessarily from their home to D.C. every day. They're at home in our communities, and we should be holding them accountable for this issue. And then governors have extreme executive power that Mm -hmm. they are able to utilize and exercise. Not quite what the president has, but they still are in charge of their domain and should be looking at doing things like creating an office of violence intervention. We saw this happen in a place like Colorado. We know that here in New York, which is where I am, that they have similar programs and just encouraging more governors to really lean into their power, which is why it's so important who's at the top. Because you can live in a state like Maryland, which we consider bright blue. Mm -hmm. But if you have a Republican governor, that means that he can veto all those incredible bills Mm -hmm. that the legislature is passing, which is what happened. Mm -hmm. And so like not taking any of this for granted. You're right. They work for us. We can't take anything for granted. And again, I just love the work that you all do with the Gun Sense candidates. And you touched on this a little bit, but I really want for us to spend a little bit of time talking about how Gun violence is an issue that also has elements of racial, religious, and gender violence that is so often intertwined. We know from the Buffalo shooting to polls to what happens at synagogues and mosques that racism plays a factor, hatred plays a factor in a lot of the gun violence episodes that we see. So 
tell us a little bit about Everytown, how you see that, how you address it, especially since it does have a role in the gun violence and safety, like mm-hmm. part of your work. I mean, we can't talk about gun violence without talking about race, mm-hmm. without talking about racial violence, without talking about racist policies. And just knowing that this is continually disproportionately impacting our communities mm-hmm. more than it is anywhere else. And it's, you know, this is so personal for me. As a woman of color, like, I just think every day how that could have been my family going to that grocery store in Buffalo, New York, and they could have been there when that shooter decided that they needed to kill black people, essentially. Mm -hmm. That's what he did. Mm -hmm. And so something that we are so aware of and so mindful of is, like, the reason a policy like Stand Your Ground exists is for that purpose. And so how do we counterbalance that? And we're always thinking about incremental steps that we can take. So if you're living in a state that recently passed permaless, like how can you make sure that you're working with your local businesses and saying like, I don't want to go to a business that is allowing guns to be openly carried in this business. Talking to that business owner and encouraging them not to do that. Talking to your elected official and saying, you don't want to be in a permalist state, that there should be requirements. Looking at things like stand your ground and calling for repeal, which is something we've been working on in Florida and in Georgia. Mm-hmm. Gun violence hits the black and Latinx communities harder than it does anywhere else. And acknowledging that. Yeah, we have some stats that the team pulled that in 2021, black Americans were 13.7 times more likely to die in a gun-related homicide than a white American. Mm-hmm. That is heartbreaking. Yeah. Like, and why is that an acceptable statistic for us to live with? Right. And I think the biggest thing that we can say is that this is not, we know gun laws save lives, but this isn't just about gun laws. This is about, you know, job loss. This is about housing instability. Mm-hmm. This is about poverty and food insecurity and scarcity. Like, we know that all these things relate to the uptick in gun violence and that if it's getting bad in one community, it's going to impact all of our communities. Mm -hmm. And that there is no downside to investing in preventing gun violence in Black and Latinx communities because that will overall benefit the whole country. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you hit on this a little bit, too, about the industries. So I want to talk about some of the things that we're seeing corporations do. Mm -hmm. And recently, the major credit card companies said that they would adopt a new code to categorize sales at gun shops. So I want to get your opinion on that, because it sounds like a new way of approaching the conversation on responsible gun purchases and ownership. And is this a good step that will help us with gun violence prevention? Oh, for sure. I think the more that we are holding the industry accountable and we're seeing things like the credit card companies, banks doing different policies, having different regulations on the industry, the better it will be for all of us. Because I think for far too long, there has been no accountability. And by doing that and one telling us as a consumer, like who they're banking with, where their money's coming from, all that adds to transparency. In a lot of states, if you're a registered charity, you are required to tell the state who your CEO is, where your money is coming from, how you're spending your money. Why are we allowing the gun industry not to do something similar? 
Like we should know what they're doing and why they're doing it. Because at the end of the day, their firearms are ending up from their factory into violent outcomes. And something that I think we don't talk about enough is when we think about responsible gun owners, at least I think for me, oftentimes one image comes into mind, which is often a white man. Mm-hmm. And I just want to acknowledge that, you know, responsible gun owners are everybody. Mm-hmm. And that there are a lot of, especially people in the BIPOC community in recent times who have purchased guns. Yes. Yeah. And they are securing them properly. And mm-hmm. they're keeping their firearm and their ammunition separate. And they're doing everything they need to be to be a responsible gun owner. So I want to reclaim that. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say that there's only one type of responsible gun owner right out there. I want to say that we all can be a part of this and say that they don't get to just own that. Right. And they also don't get to own the narrative. I love these campaign ads of women and it features them being a gun owner, but how the gun is locked up, how their children mm-hmm. cannot get in. And it's part of how we change the conversation Absolutely. by especially seeing women say, mm-hmm. I am a responsible gun owner. I believe in the second amendment, but we have to make sure that we're caring about our families and our communities in the process. Absolutely. And that's exactly how we start to change these things, right? Like secure storage is such a huge part of that. Being a responsible gun owner is such a huge part of that. And also acknowledging that it's not just one thing. Right, right. This has been such an enlightening conversation. Please tell our listeners who want to know more about your work and how they can support the gun violence prevention movement, how they could get involved. Sure. So we make it very easy. You can text ELECTIONS to 64433. That will plug you into all of the electoral work we're doing. If you're interested in joining a Moms Demand Action or Students Demand Action, that will also plug you into those networks. You will be able to receive our emails so that you're able to stay up to date on what we're doing. And hopefully, if you're listening and you'd like to join us in the fight, We'll be getting ready for session again in January, and we welcome you to join us at the state houses and advocate on this issue. Love it. We still got a lot more work to do. We do. Manisha, thank you for joining us, for telling your story, and for all the great work that you do. Thank you so much. This has been a real pleasure. Today, we are going on the scene with Anzari Kepra who talks about her work in the gun violence sphere. She has experienced gun violence in her own life and used that experience to create Project Orange Tree. Today, she discusses how people can become informed about gun violence prevention and make a difference in their communities. Hi, my name is Nzari. I am a gun violence prevention activist and a co-founder of Wear Orange, which is a nationally recognized gun violence awareness campaign, as well as a gun violence prevention campaign that happens annually. Chicago is very well known for the level of gun violence that we see within the city, especially concentrated in black and brown communities. Although Chicago has some of the most strict gun laws and policies in place due to its location and the surrounding state's policies. People have, you know, access to illegal guns and there is high levels of violence throughout the city. When I was in high school, I had a friend 
Uh, her name was Hydea Pendleton, and she was just at a park five minutes away from our school with a group of other people from our school as well, celebrating after one of our final exam days, and a car with two people in it drove by and opened fire, and she was shot and lost her life due to the injuries. Hydea was really like a shining light within our community, within our, our school, seeing her lose her life to violence, it really forced us all to recognize the issue. And so it was a moment for me to realize, not only do I wanna commemorate Hadia's life and really ensure that the same energy and excitement that she brought to the world, we could try to preserve that for other people who could be potential victims of gun violence. But then also at the same time to recognize that there's a whole system and there's whole structures in place that need to be corrected in order to find a solution to this gun violence and protect the people that need this protection. So Project Orange Tree was developed immediately after Hadia passed away. There was a ton of media attention on her murder in all the wrong ways. We really wanted to ensure that people understood that this is about the fact that someone lost their life and multiple people are losing their lives and being injured every single day because of gun violence prevention. How do we engage people around that? And so Project Orange Tree was that engagement. It started off as a group of people that were just honestly emotional, you know, grieving, angry. As we got in depth with that and we had the support of everyone from our community, like there was no other option to continue to be active. And that's what Project Orange Tree was. We set a date and we started to work toward a campaign. And that was like viral before viral really was a thing, right? Like we had people from from South Africa, from people from the Middle East, people within Chicago, of course, and people across the nation, reaching out via Twitter and all of our social media handles saying, we support you, we understand. We were also fasting from sunup to sundown to show that we were dining with the deceased. And we did things to save, save Chicago as actively as we could, creating food drives, allowing talented people around Chicago to get exposure and find different outlets for you know their creative thoughts. Project Orange Tree was basically like a product of loss and grief and a desire to protect everyone that was around us and prevent things like Hydea's death from happening multiple times over. One of my favorite parts about the Wear Orange campaign is that it is so diverse in the number of organizations, companies, causes, etc. that are, you know, supporting Wear Orange. Just go on down to wearorange.org, check out the site and see if there are any partners that you can help out with. The last thing that I would like to say is that you don't always have to donate your time. You do not always have to donate your money. The first thing that everyone should do in the United States is to recognize that gun violence prevention is not anyone else's problem. We are all impacted by it every single day. So if you can recognize that and start to continue to rally for gun violence prevention, then that's always a good start. Grassroots supporters across the country are making their voices heard this election season because their voices have an impact. AdBlue's secure online fundraising platform is trusted by millions of small dollar donors who are driving the change they want to see. At adblue.com directory, you can find and contribute directly to the groups and causes that matter most to you. So head to adblue.com directory to take action today.
Thank you so much to all of our listeners. Please take the time to rate and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. It really helps us out. For more information on the Brown Girl's Guide to Politics, check us out at thebgguide.com and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The BG Guide. The Brown Girl's Guide to Politics podcast is produced by Wonder Media Network, and you can find them at wondermianetwork.com. Check out our next episode, where we will talk with Dr. Erica Buchanan-Rivera about the current state of education in the U.S. Until next time, Brown Girls. It's no secret that Hollywood has become increasingly vocal about their politics in recent years. Actors, artists, and creators clearly feel the responsibility of using their platform for good. The question is, how? On the Accidental Activist, former CNN anchor and acclaimed journalist Aisha Sisse uncovers the turn of events that spurred the cultural icons we all follow to take action to change the world. Join her every week as she speaks to celebrity activists, including Jesse Williams, Busy Phillips, Justin Baldoni, and more. The causes they support may be different, but one thread connects them all, the desire to make a difference in the world. Listen wherever you get your podcast.